Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome to the Wisconsin Legends Podcast, live from Milwaukee Paracon 2023, to prove to the people who are listening later that we are in front of a live audience. Can I hear everybody give a clap and a woo? Okay. I'm feeling the love, Mike. We, we totally didn't edit that in post. All right. Coming up with... Jeff Finnup, Badgerland Legends. And we are joined today uh, by my sister and Milwaukee hauntings. I'm going to say expert, even though it's hard to say anybody in the paranormal is an expert because we're dealing with the unknown. But you're the closest thing we have to it in Milwaukee. Well, I like to call myself the Milwaukee's Fordian historian because... Hey. As Mike said, a lot of the paranormal is very speculative, but it, when you look at the documents, uh, you'll find that there are a lot of amazing stories that were recorded, uh, and that's what we're going to talk to you about today. Some stories of incursions by what really looks like demonic forces in the Milwaukee area. They're all vetted stories. They're not just in the newspapers, but these people did exist and you can find them in census records and uh, these were real people so I'm not trying to make light of this and um, some of these stories are very scary and I'll try to keep it kid friendly uh, but there just, is just murder be, involved just be warned just be warned okay and so also uh, for the recording your name is Allison Jornlin yes my name is Allison <laughs> okay, Jornlin Did I didn't say that Allison Jornlin no, you... from American Ghost Walks okay perfect all right, well, let's get started with talking about tales of the devil in Milwaukee. So how many of my ex-girlfriends are you talking about today, Alice? Oh, so many. Hey! All right, and here is your litany of terror, otherwise known as a table of contents. The so, itinerary of terror. <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. We're going to... We're. This is a list of uh, the cases we're going to talk about today. So we start chronologically with 1854 and a convent infestation that occurred in Milwaukee's mother house. And then um, number two is um, there's a strange death that occurred in 1920 uh, to a little nine-year-old boy called Raymond Nats. And it's very frightening. I would say it's probably the most uh, scary story that I've ever found. And he was real and his family members were real. Uh, number three is Milwaukee exorcisms. Uh, we had our own exorcist in Wisconsin that was o ordained here right at St. Francis Ceremon uh, Seminary. And we're, he's been involved in high-profile exorcism that you may have heard of, the 1928 uh, Earling, Iowa case. But he was from Wisconsin. And possibly the possessed woman was from Milwaukee, although I'll talk about some problems with that assertion, uh, but that they don't talk about what happened in 1926. She, she was exercised here first in Milwaukee. And then At your gonna, house. <laughs> <laughs> then we're going to talk about uh, some conclusions and maybe take your questions and stories or uh, comments. All right. 
the convent infestation. So anybody out there remember that we had a mother house here in Milwaukee? It was on Milwaukee Street, and it's right where the Convent Hill apartments are located today. The building is much smaller than you'll see the convent was. It's called um, Convent Hill. It's called Convent Hill Apartments for a reason. And uh, the, the bells from the old convent are in the back of the building. So you can still go visit those, and they still work very loud. But that's right on um, Milwaukee Street and Ogden. Now, the mother superior called Mother Caroline was Caroline Frice, And she's significant because... Uh, this was the uh, first American convent of the Order of Notre Dame. So maybe, or Notre Dame, as we sometimes say uh, in the States. But you might be fr more familiar with all these Notre Dame schools all over the country. Well, this is where they came from, from this woman who came to establish the order in the United States and also to establish these schools. I think that's 500-some schools across the country, but the headquarters was right here in Milwaukee. So that's Caroline Price, and um, better known as Mother Caroline. Well, Mother Caroline came over in the 1850s, and while we think of Milwaukee now as a very, I would say, Catholic-friendly city, when it was first established, they were facing a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment uh, in the city at the time. There, in fact, was an entire, some of the German population that had come over were part of these, this German revolution of the late 1840s, and they hated Catholics in particular. Yes, and it was a movement, and they were called the Know-Nothings, and I think something that they did might have led to the demonic uh, infestation. Yeah, so the, the, the German 48ers were what they were called, um, and they weren't miners or anything like that. They were people that hated Catholics, and we're in an Irish place, so I guess it's a fairly, supposed to be fairly Catholic-friendly. But uh, in, eight, in 1854, it was not quite so friendly uh, to nuns. Yeah, they, they couldn't go out on the street. People would, members of the Know Nothing Party would throw stones at them, and actually... Uh, broke windows uh, at the beautiful mother house, um, which, as you can see, was quite large. There's the original building, but then it became a whole, whole city block. There's a, a better depiction of it where, where you can see it's, it's almost like a citadel, <laughs> and there's many buildings where uh, the nuns were housed, and all the women that were thinking of becoming nuns called the novices. Or postulates. That's yes. my favorite nun word. That's right. That's right. So um, I'm glad that Mike mentioned the know-nothings because not only were they, you know, protesting outside the convent, you know, throwing stones when, when the nuns dared to leave and physically accosting them or, you know, drawing negative signs on their back with, with chalk when they could, there was also a procession that they led uh, through the streets to the uh, nunnery, and they were all dressed in black cloaks, and they had a goat with them, never a good sign, and uh, they also had 
a book that they had made up to look like the black book of the devil. And uh, they did a ceremony out in front um, of the nunnery. And soon after is when all the disturbances started. So I think there might be a connection there that they were cursed. Malediction, it's called. You're going to hear that word a lot today, probably. And that's interesting, too, because they're performing. They bring bring out the goat, as you do when you're doing some devil stuff. But, you know, we think of these, were these, were the know-nothings devil worshipers? No, in fact, they were atheists. So they're more like, um, if you think of that, the satanic temple today, the people that put up that, like, the statue of Baal in, like, the Oklahoma courthouse and everything. So it's the idea that they're not particularly, like, they don't really think the devil's going to show up when they do these things. They're doing it to show that they hate the nuns. And it's like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is based in Madison. It's just their idea like, hey, we're not interested in getting the religion here. So this idea, like, I don't think the know-nothings were particularly satanic or this idea that they really thought the devil would come. They're doing something symbolic. Right, but that doesn't mean it still couldn't call in dark forces. Right. So I've got a little timeline. It began rather innocuously, it's hard to say, uh, when uh, a bunch of novices were in their dorms and started recognizing all these this strange activity. Uh, they couldn't get any of the candles to light that night in, on December 8th, 1854. And so they called for, for Mother Caroline, and she took a very rational approach. You know, these were young girls thinking of becoming nuns. And, and she thought, you know, like many people at the time, they were prone to hysteria and uh, flights of imagination. But when she entered, she saw that she couldn't get any of the candles to light either. And they were able to get some light in there from the windows because it's moonlit night. And they saw that um, there were all these nightcaps um, that, the, that the sisters wore. And they were lined up on a table and they started to dance, which is not very scary. In my it's like estimation. a Disney movie or whatever. It's yes. Like, um, yeah, it's like um, Beauty the, and the, Beast. the magician's apprentice where you see the broom start to dance. Well, she said that she observed these nightcaps dancing around, and that caused a lot of fear um, in everyone involved. And um, also not being able to shed significant light on the situation made them very worried. So from then on, over a period of 13 months, the activity only got worse. And they witnessed all kinds of extraordinary things and also abuse. Not only were the nuns complaining of being physically assaulted by unseen hands, uh, when one of the postulates said that she was actually her ears were boxed. She was hit about the ears violently. And their poor dog, I hope he ran away, but um, he was also a victim of this unseen force. And this is what Carolyn Price said herself. It was blood curdling the way the poor dog yelped. He was being beaten by something unseen, uh, but she distinctly heard the cracks of a whip. But as usual, I saw nothing. 
And then she said the dog disappeared. Uh, he just ran away after this attack and uh, was never seen again. So hopefully he, he did just get somewhere safe. There's many other alleged uh, paranormal events that took place. So uh, one night, in the middle of the night, they had call, call bells, which would, um, there was a, a room, and these bells, you could make them ring, in particular sisters' rooms. And so one night, all the call bells rang at once, and they wouldn't stop ringing. And so Mother Caroline didn't know what was the matter, and was especially concerned because she was the only one with a key to the room where the call bell apparatus was kept. So she ran in there, there's no one there, but she saw that as she approached, some of the, the bells were still moving. Also during mass, there was a candle that was lit on the altar and everyone assembled watched this candle just blink out of existence. And then later it was found still burning in a closed closet. So in psychical research, we call that an apport. Uh, There's also another apport where some nuns were baking bread in the kitchen and they had just put it into the oven and they went back to, you know, they'd been working on something else in the kitchen and they just went back to take a look and all the loaves were missing, and uh, they were found later floating around in the cistern. And then shadowy figures were seen in the church after dark, and also howling was heard at night throughout the echoing halls of the very big convent. And as I said before, sisters complained of being battered by unseen hands. These events were eventually resolved, not in a very nice way, I don't think. We'll talk about that in a second. But then after these events, about a year later after the secession of these events, a choir of angels was heard to be singing in the chapel. So instead of being awakened by these horrible screams and howls in the middle of the night, as they had become accustomed to over those 13 months of harassment, they were one night, a year later, awoken by sweet singing of what they assumed was a choir of angels. And they went to the chapel and they saw heavenly light emanating. And from on, then on, until modern times. So this was 1854. This went on until 1859 when the convent was raised. Mother Caroline actually established a, a sacrament of, of uh, perpetual adoration, which means that in the chapel, 24-7, there were nuns praying. They would take shifts to make sure that the Virgin Mary and other people that are other religious figures like Jesus and the angels who they felt had now blessed the convent and are, were protecting them for demonic forces, they would have these sisters come and pray and they were there 24 seven for almost a hundred years doing that around the clock. That's called uh, the Sacrament of Perpetual Adoration. Now, um, so speaking of Mary, though, real yeah. quick. 
So one, th- one reason that Mother Caroline thought that this demonic infestation was happening, and, and this is, um, goes back to the fact that they felt like they were under attack, not just from the devil, but by the know-nothings and the other people in, in Milwaukee who were hostile to them. And this is from the book, um, As a Magnet, the Life of Mother Caroline, uh, by uh, Sister Mary Thule um, Zimmerman. So it's a, it's a book by a nun, so there's, not, there's just a little bit of vulgarity. <laughs> anyway, so uh, why did Mother Caroline think it happened? She said, the state of affairs began on the date that Pope Pius IX declared the Immaculate Conception a dogma of faith, December 8, 1854. So the idea of the Immaculate Conception is that uh, Mary, Jesus' ma, was born without sin. And so that's a very particularly Catholic thing. And it came out December 8, 1854. It seems, Mother Carolyn reflected, that just at the time a new outburst of hatred, Our Lady manifests itself to the world. The devil emerges with one of the older girls, thoroughly disturbed by the strangeness. And so Mother Caroline's talking to one of the girls who's disturbed, and the girl says, it's all so frightening, she said. You never know what's going to happen next. I didn't think the devil was real. I thought he was just a myth or a fairy tale. Mother Caroline looked at the girl calmly, but the attitude expressed made her feel anything but calm. You didn't think he existed? A few days later, she gathered the community together and spoke to them of what was happening. Perhaps the girl who came to her was not the only one who did not understand the reality of the devil. There is no doubt about the origin of these happenings, Mother Caroline told them, and if some of you are still doubtful regarding the existence of the devil, it is time you learned that he exists. So they had an idea why it happened, and then they had an idea who was doing it. Um, and it, it wasn't, this time it wasn't uh, the know-nothings. This time uh, it was the man downstairs. Okay, so how, they, how did they stop all this harassment that they felt was coming from the devil? Well, there was one of the novices that had come to the convent to escape a marriage. So her name was Henrika. And apparently, there was a very persistent suitor that wouldn't take no for an answer. But she didn't want to marry him, so she ran away to the convent. Now, the sisters began to believe that through malediction or cursing, that's what had brought the demonic influences into the convent, because he was upset about losing this woman he wanted to marry. Now... They also found that you know, strange pranks like this weird slush that didn't act quite like water was found uh, that initial night on uh, the, the pillows of all the novices except for this girl. And then they found that she acted strangely at certain times when approaching religious objects, inappropriately laughing or being repelled by them. From that, um, Sister Caroline was talking to the, the parish priest, and, and he said he felt that she might be under uh, demonic uh, influence or even possession. When we think of all these, these hijinks that went on, I think of her more as like a poltergeist agent, as we would think of uh, poltergeist today, where um, they manifest in, with these strange antics. Anyway, they felt that 
she was the reason for the activity. So did they give her a sanctuary or an exorcism? Well, they, they made her go back home. Yeah, they kicked her out. And that, that guy who wouldn't take no for an answer, he had been lurking by the convent. So as soon as she, as she, soon as she walked out the door, he scooped her up. But after she left, all the problems ceased. So she was in some way connected, but I feel was an innocent victim of, you know, a channel for this activity, but not willingly. And she suffered uh, in an unhappy marriage uh, so that the convent could be freed uh, from this demonic infestation. And it's just sad because I thought you could go to the church for asylum, and I feel like they failed her in this case, and they don't even acknowledge it in the works that are written. So if you want to read more about this case, um, As a Magnet is the one source um, from the 60s that uh, Mike mentioned. There's also a longer account in a, a book called Running Waters by Kovo um, Lucum, and you can find both of those at St. Francis Seminary in their Salzman Library. So, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a sad story for the girl ended up pretty good for the convent uh, where they had this site of perpetual adoration for over a hundred years. Um, but in the end, the devil went home and I, maybe he went back to that, their house right, <laughs> or whatever. Maybe. So uh, story number two involves a strange death. And we're going to talk about the victim, which was uh, poor little uh, Raymond Nance, who I've talked about before because this is possibly the scariest story, in my opinion, that I ever found because it's just a straight newspaper. It's a couple of straight newspaper articles, and uh, it involves li little Raymond Nance. She's, um, Nance, he's nine years old. This is a picture of him from um, one of the newspaper articles in the local papers. And he seemed like a regular nine-year-old boy. This was May of 1920 that this happened. And there was an epidemic going through the schools at the time of measles. And he had just recovered from measles. But on this, May, on this beautiful May day, uh, he decided to go fishing. And that, that would have tragic results. Previous to this day that we're going to talk about, he had been seeing things that only he could see. And this isn't an exact quote from him. All the way home, that white shadow crept right along behind me. Something is going to happen. I can feel it. So he felt that his death was imminent and that this creature, whatever it was, he described it as a white shadow, had been following him for reasons unknown. Now here's uh, the Milwaukee Sentinel article which gives the most details. I just gave the headline, it's super long. But it talks about what had happened. Now, um, as, I, as you may have saw, seen on the slide, uh, Raymond's parents were estranged and they were separated and about to go through a divorce. So, but he had bigger problems because this strange thing was following him. So the scariest night was the night before his death where his parents noticed him acting strangely. He had first gone to his mother's house which was in the neighborhood of Lincoln Village. So although according to census records of uh, the family was German, they were living in a Polish neighborhood. 
Anyway, he lived right near 4th or 5th Street, uh, where that is today. And he went down the street to visit his mom. And she said that all night he just seemed terrified. He wouldn't talk about it, but he was following something around the room. And just seemed, you know, white-knuckled, you know, frozen in fear. And so, of course, she noticed something was wrong. And he would just sit in the corner, and his eyes darted about as if following some imminent threat. And then his father came and picked him up. And for some reason, he maintained a distance between, between him and his father, and that's when he said, this white shadow is following me. So he was in some way protecting his father, not wanting to be too close because that white thing would be close to his father as well. And the same thing when he got home, just uh, sat dejected in the corner looking around at whatever thing this was and wanted to just stay up all night. But of course, his dad had work in the morning. He um, was a woodworker at a local sawmill, and so he made Raymond go to bed. But in the night, Raymond woke his dad up because he was talking in his sleep and screaming loudly. And then his father came to his bedside and shook him awake. And he, he was saying, oh, daddy, uh, I was in the water with the fishes and it was so beautiful. But before that, he had been screaming at something and saying to something that an unseen forest that you're just fooling me. Uh, you can't get me. And then he had this strange attitude about playing with the fishes. So then that morning, Herman, Nance, had to go back, had to go out to work, and he left Raymond with a neighbor lady. But he slipped away early that morning to go fishing at Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is about a, an hour away, walking-wise, from where he was later found in the lake. So he had to walk for an hour. And then, sadly, he disappeared, and they had to drag the lake. And he wasn't found until that Friday afternoon. So it was Wednesday, the evening of Wednesday that we were talking about. And um, then uh, after midnight, is when he awakened his father. And then, and then the drowning happened around 8.45 because little Raymond had a pocket watch. So although when he got to the lake, it looks like he just dropped his, his pole, his fishing rod, and his hat, his cap on the ground, he still had his pocket watch. So from the time... The police only came to one conclusion, that, that Raymond hadn't intended to go fishing at all. He'd, he'd walked for an hour and then kept walking straight into Lake Michigan until the water was over his head and he could walk no more. Now, what nine-year-old is capable of that kind of behavior? So um, when we talk about the activity here, yeah, we don't have multiple witnesses seeing the shadow. Only Raymond sees that, and only Raymond is aware of this harassment. But he's got this incredible sense of foreboding 
Uh, perhaps he was foretelling his own death. And it's just shocking, though, to think of, just think of you as an adult. Could you walk into the water? I mean, they often show that on TV and movies where somebody just walks into the water and they just keep walking. But could a nine-year-old do that? And why? Why would he do that? And Lake Michigan's cold. <laughs> Let's, it be, is. let's it be real. Is. Nobody especially, just jumps in like, especially the in great. May. But that's why he wasn't in school because of this measles, measles epidemic. It had closed down schools. He was just recovering from it himself. But you know, this was May in the middle of the week, and uh, he was out there uh, because nobody was in school to uh, quell that epidemic. Now I see several different connections um, for different things. Um, what's happened to Raymond to other, you know, paranormal activity. Number one is the Noknicza, which is the Polish night hag. So, you guys ever had a sleep paralysis? Can I get a, a round of applause if anybody's ever had sleep paralysis? I don't want to cheer for that. I've had <laughs> it's terrifying. You know, sleep paralysis is terrible. And especially when you're in the hypnagogic state, which is as you're falling asleep, Sometimes you see things, or if you ever have the experience where you, um, you like that falling or that you kind of trip or whatever, then you, you wake yourself up. Um, it's a very, it's a physical experience. You're, it, it's happening to you. So, or you, or you wake up and you feel that someone's sitting on your chest and you can't move. That's, that's the night hag. And that's been, in, you know, every culture seems to have it. The Slavic culture, which would have been Lincoln Village, the Noknicha, is from the Wikipedia article. In Russian and Slavic folklore, uh, Noknicha is known to torment children at night, and a stone with a hole in the center is said to be the protection. Mothers in some regions will place a knife in their children's cradles or draw a circle around the cradles with a knife for protection. This is possibly based on the belief that supernatural beings, beings cannot touch iron. Noknicha is known to sit on one's chest, drawing life energy. Because of this, many refer to the Noknicha as a type of vampire. They will often continue visiting, and according to some folklore, night hags visit while one sleeps on one's back with the hands on the chest, a position allegedly called sleeping with the dead. Accordingly to some folklore, night hags are made of shadow, just like what Raymond saw. She might also have a horrible screeching voice, just like my ex-girlfriend's. <laughs> she might allegedly also smell of moss and dirt from her forest of origin. So these are obviously villages we're talking also about. Also like your ex-girlfriend? Are, <laughs> right, they, right, they smell bad. No, okay. So, but, so this idea of the night hag, though, he's, he's talking to something and he says, you can't get me, you're just fooling, you can't get me, uh, until eventually he kind of accepts what's going to happen to him. We all talk about, you know, if you think about Nightmare on Elm Street... Or think about the movie Dreamscape. Remember that classic? Oh, yeah. It's the idea, though. In those movies, they say, if you die in your sleep, you die in real life, right? And everybody's like, nah, that's not true. What if it was? Sudden, unexplained nocturnal death syndrome. Um, we got an article uh, here talking about from uh, the 2018 Journal of the American Heart Association. It's called Lai Thai in Thailand. The word Lai in Laotian means a loud groan occurring during sleep or a loud noise made while frightened. And Thai is a Thai word meaning death. Uh, it's called 
uh, bangagut in the Philippines, and that's a Tagalog word meaning to rise and moan in your sleep. Bakuri death syndrome in Japan. Bakuri means suddenly and unexpectedly. This is a Los Angeles Times article from July 10th, 1981. Night deaths of Asian men unexplained. Tokyo. Each year, hundreds of apparently healthy young Japanese die suddenly in their sleep, sometimes with a gasp or a shout, and doctors do not know why. Reports of similar deaths in the Philippines and among Indo-Chinese refugees in the United States have given rise to speculation by medical experts that the disease might be common to ethnic groups throughout Asia. Okay, obviously not Raymond Nantz. It's not a matter of the heart being good or bad, said Dr. Michio Inui of the Tokyo Metropolitan Medical Examiner's Office, which studies Pokiri. They seem to be dying of heart failure, but we can only guess the cause. So this comes through, and these articles in the uh, L.A. Times when they came out, when it happened to the Hmong population um, after the Vietnam War, that's what inspired Wes Craven to create Nightmare on Elm Street. And we could actually do a whole podcast on that. Just, just that. Uh, now, who's going to have also... a hard time falling asleep tonight? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just yeah like, well, we didn't want you to fall asleep during the presentation. And, so. and I'd, say, I'd say take your Ambien to help. What does Ambien do to people? Makes them sleepwalk. Yeah, so uh, go on. So here's another thing that could have happened to Raymond. This is from the Toronto Star. In the wake of the Chris Heinemann tragedy, experts say death by sleepwalking is possible. This is from uh, August 6, 2015. It's rare, but experts say it's definitely possible to die while sleepwalking. Of course it's dangerous, said Dr. Colin Shapiro, a University of Toronto professor. People can essentially do anything. They can walk in their sleep, they can talk in their sleep, they can eat in their sleep, they can drive their car in their sleep, they can have sex in their sleep. Um, that, that's, I didn't make that up, he said that. And, and to fall and injure yourself or die, it's definitely possible, Shapiro said. The plausibility of such a demise has come up in the wake of Chris Heinemann's death. The popular television personality, it's Canada, who knows who this guy is. The popular television personality was found dead in an alleyway next to the East End apartment where he lived with his on-screen partner and spouse, Stephen Sabados. Heinemann's mother told the star she believed her son died in an unfortunate accident while sleepwalking. So, okay, people can die in their sleep. Now, why, like, why is that happening? This is from Scientific American in 2012, and this is about sleepwalking killers. And this is uh, by people that have done the research on it. For as long as we have recognized walking and talking in our sleep, we have also been aware of more extreme nighttime behaviors. Homer's epics mention a sleeper's tragic suicide. In 1313, a church-led council concluded that a sleepwalking killer was not culpable for his crimes. We have no way of knowing the truth of these matters. Nonetheless, the medical literature reflects many complex actions occurring during sleep. The, the first brain imaging study to observe this state was led by uh, one of the authors. A 16-year-old sleepwalker was monitored for two nights with electrodes placed on his scalp to produce a, a, a polysomnogram of his brain activity. So what they found when he rose from his deep sleep walked around, opened his eyes, even had a scared expression on his face, uh, they put a little radioactive tracer in him while he was sleepwalking. And so then they scanned it. And they uh, compared the boy's brain activity when sleepwalking and when in deep sleep. And in sleepwalking state, the scans revealed greater activity in areas of the brain involved in motor control, so walking, 
And then compared with the brain of a healthy awake subject, they had a lot less engagement in the regions necessary for higher cognitive functions, thinking, you know, um, planning, insight. So basically, sleepwalking, it's activating your motor part of your body. And your part of your body that thinks and that knows what's going on is off. Yeah. So did you find also a connection to measles? I did. Early onset, sorry, this is a word I'm going to butcher, subacute sclerosing pancephalitis. And this is something that happens to people, especially children, after they have measles. And because not everybody's vaccinated in India, this is an article from the Indian Journal of um, Psychological Medicine, 2017. Now, the cases are normally fatal. The symptoms can range from altered behavior, alienation and personality, myclonic jerks, which is a... Um, uh, epilepsy type thing, cognitive decline, gradual behavior changes, an unsteady gait, uh, photosensitivity, and the average latent period is seven to ten years. So often people, this happens to them ten years after they get measles, but it's happened up to one month after they've gotten measles. And what happens as a result? Well, sometimes they get a paranoid hallucinatory psychosis. Oh, wow. So, so that, that might have a... Uh, there might be a medical explanation for what happened to Raymond. Right. So this is a different, this is a 2003 article. Um, and they reported a case of a 19-year-old man who was first diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is hearing voices, but finally shown to have subacute sclerosing uh, panencephalitis. And, so, and he had hallucinations and negative symptoms with the onset, and he had seizures. So they thought that he was schizophrenic, but really he had this disease, which results from people getting measles. So while I do probably think it was the night hag that got him. <laughs> um, we have to entertain other explanations. So we're going to go be. a little bit long. Is that okay, Mike? That's okay. We can go into a couple of yeah. Father so, Riesinger's greatest hits. Because I think you got to hear about Milwaukee's exorcist, Father Theophilus Riesinger. And that's who we're going to talk about next. Because we could do a whole thing on um, sudden death in the night. Because... One of those instances in Asia occurred in the Singapore where 400 men died as a result. So there's a lot to be talked about there. But anyway, let's get back to Milwaukee and Milwaukee exorcisms. So has anybody here heard of the 1928 Earling exorcism in um, Earling, Iowa? Yeah! Huh? <laughs> okay, let's just a couple of people. All right, this is... Quite a famous case because in addition to the Roland Doe 1949 case in, uh, in St. Louis that you hear a lot about, this uh, 1928 case also influenced William Peter Blatty and the writing of the book and then later the movie The Exorcist. He read these accounts of exorcisms and the dramatic things that were said to happen. So as far as the body contortion and the pea, the pea soup projectile vomiting, that comes from the 1928 case uh, in which a 40-year-old woman was exorcised by a Milwaukee-ordained priest called uh, Theophilus Riesinger. So, um, but they don't talk about 1926 when that woman was first exorcised in Milwaukee. <laughs> yes. So, Find the devil right here. And, and um, I also want to mention 
that um, the archdiocese actually had a press conference in 1926 to announce two exorcisms that year by Father Theo. One was of a mechanic, uh, a male mechanic from Milwaukee, and I don't have many details about that one. Um, but I do know that Father Riesinger was quoted saying that as he released the demons from this man, it shook the seminary. So we think that that uh, went on in Milwaukee at the uh, Capuchin Monastery on 4th and Harmon Streets. And again, as the devils were released, the whole building shook. That's all I know about that one. They should have press releases now. Yeah. I I know. Can you? This was actually a press conference where two top officials from the Catholic Church came out to say that there were these two exorcisms that were performed locally, and this news went national. Can you imagine the reporters, though? It's like the 1920s, like talking, like, okay, so did you vomit pea soup out of it? You know, just think about (laughs) 1920s reporters talking to these priests about an exorcism. I would have liked to be there. So we know know the most about the woman, although there's a lot of um, things that still need to be sorted out because there's two different stories of how she became possessed. She was given the pseudonym Anna Eklund. So if you search for that online, you'll find a lot about the 1928 exorcism because there's a book that's popularly available um, uh, called Be Gone Satan, which is all about the 1928 exorcisms, and you can read it for free online. Some people say that her real name was Emma Smith, but finding her census records has proved difficult for me because some of the details just don't match up. But this guy was definitely real. Theophilus Riesinger, he was ordained here in Milwaukee at St. Francis Seminary, and he moved to the Appleton area. But he came back to Milwaukee often whenever he was needed. And he wasn't afraid to take people out of state like um, he did with Emma. That's what I'm going to call her. Because he felt that they needed to be taken away from, from their local area so that, you know, the community wouldn't be talking about them. First, he took her in 1926 to St. Jo- uh, Joseph's Hospital, which was located on 4th Street and Reservoir Avenue. So she was admitted as a patient, and then he underwent a three-day fast and then performed the rites of exorcism in the church chapel. Now, he was known to be an extraordinarily strong man. He said that most people, uh, most exorcists, didn't live long after their first exorcism. Now, I can't support that through documentation, but this is what he believed. And he said he was gifted by extraordinary, with extraordinary strength from the Lord and was able to successfully exorcise 22 people in his, in his long career. But by extraordinary strength, do you mean like strength of character, or do you mean like spiritual? Could, oh, spirit. Okay, I was just saying like if he could like airplane spin. Well, he was. The devil. He did have a very, he did have a very athletic physique. He was known to to you know work long hours and have big muscles. 
You got a picture of him. Take he looks note, like a badass. Ladies. What was that? I said, you got a picture of him. He looks like a badass. Yeah, yeah, he is kind of a badass, I would say. Look at that. Really tall and really built. But he had this spiritual strength that he could, he could uh, withstand the onslaughts of the devil. And in the 1928 exorcism that he performed for 23 days, not consecutively, there were breaks in between, so it was over a period of several months. But the whole exorcism of Emma in Earling, Iowa, at the convent there, lasted for 23 days. And you have to, it's, it's a really physical work, apparently, because his um, cassocks would get sweated through, and he would have to change his clothes sometimes three times a day. And also, there was the projectile vomiting. Don't forget about that. That could have something to do with it. He did have help in the 1928 exorcism, by uh, Father Joseph Steiger, and that was his local parish in Earling, Iowa. And uh, so this, this guy actually uh, reported that, that the, the spirits were like after him, and he had a hard time staying in the exorcisms because they would say terrible things to him and accuse him of terrible things. And then one day they said, well, just wait till Friday. And he's like, okay. On Friday, he was called away because one of his parishioners needed last rites. And so he drove to their house and administered last rites. And then on the way back, he said that he was, as he was crossing this treacherous bridge, this black cloud descended in front of his face and blinded him. So he crashed into the rails. Now, um, thankfully, he survived his car didn't, but he survived and a nearby farmer had heard the crash and ran to his aid. And uh, when he returned to the exorcism, he hadn't told anybody about that, but the demon knew right away. So how did you like that, Father Steiger? And uh, so Father Steiger was surprised that the demon knew about his accident. And the demon also acknowledged that if he hadn't been protected by one of the saints, he would have been dead. As I said, these 1926 exorcisms made national news, but you won't find information about the press conference in the Milwaukee papers, uh, but what you will find is in-depth accounts of the exorcisms at uh, the hospital chapel. This is the most amazing one, I think, from uh, February 18th, after the rites which took place on the, uh, around the end of January, the woman was still in the hospital, and they interviewed a nun named Sister Blanche, and she talked about how, how uh, this little woman exhibited extraordinary strength um, and had to be dragged into the chapel by four big men, and the howling and animal sounds that came from her just seemed unnatural. Now... This is interesting, something that Father Theophilus Riesinger said in a later interview, which when Begone Satan came out in 1936, he was interviewed in the Milwaukee papers, and then his interview um, went national, and then Time Magazine actually featured him. Can you imagine opening up Time Magazine today and seeing them profiling an exorcist and talking about um, details of exorcisms. Well, this is interesting to me because I always thought you had to like 
give yourself to the devil, like verbally, or at least like in the exorcist films, like play with the Ouija board or something naughty that you're not supposed to do that, that allows you entrance. But he said that um, sometimes there is diabolical material in the body, and this must be expelled. And as long as it is there, the devil can always come back. You might like to pick up this sensational book about, about the case of Emma's exorcism called The Devil Rocked Her Cradle. Anyway, in here you find out that her aunt, who was having infidelity with her father, was said to have cursed her, along with her father cursing her for various abuse-ridden reasons that I won't mention. Um, his, the um, aunt, Mina cursed her by putting some strange herbs in her tea and performing malediction, which is essentially putting a spell on her. Father Theo is acknowledging that, that you could have some tainted food that has some cursed herbs in it, and that could make you a swinging door for all manner of devils and demons. But he would later come to believe that Anna, or Emma, as I'm going to call her, that she was actually a vessel of the Lord, and she was the swinging door. And this is why he had to exercise her so often. There are sources that claim that Father Theo, his first rite with Emma when she was a teenager in 1912, and then in 1926, he brings her to Milwaukee and exercises her here. And then in 1928, he takes her to Earling, Iowa, to the convent there. And the, the nuns there help by holding her down and doing other various services. But I think most importantly, what he wanted is, just like we were talking about the, the rite of perpetual adoration, you know, they could assist with the exorcism by constantly praying during that 23-day period, praying around the clock. And that's what I think happened. But in, so real quick, Allison, yeah. we're running out of time. So yeah. how did it end up? So let's just, so, how did, yeah. how did, what happened to poor Emily and how did it end up so we can uh, yeah, let everybody so, know? We can't leave so, on a, a cliffhanger. So in 1936, he admitted in Time Magazine and in local interviews that uh, Emma would have to be exercised for the rest of her life, that she wasn't so much a victim of, of uh, these spirits anymore, but they were trapped in her body, and then they could be exercised by Father Theo and then locked up in hell for a long time so they wouldn't be set anyone else on earth. And he, she also at one point felt that she was having communications with holy figures like the Virgin Mary was possessing her. So she came like a vehicle for the faith. Now, interesting. So it was not a really happy ending for Emma. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, because she wasn't, um, she, she was more in control of her actions, but she always performed that service of taking in the, de the devils into her own body. And then Father Theo would come along and take those de devils and throw them back into hell. So, so he's, he said that she literally freed this world from billions and billions of demonic beings. All right. Well, okay. Well, thanks, Emma. We appreciate that today. Yeah. So I know we're wrapping up, but I wanted to just take a minute to see if anybody had any questions or comments. 
or their own uh, stories to share? Because well, what are we, we supposed can, to make We can definitely do the we can definitely do the stories to share at the Ghost Story Open Mic. Oh, that's, that's right. That's We're ending the today. day with that. Yeah. So uh, we'll we'll talk about that more later. But any questions though? We could take one or two. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, 59. Yeah, so she didn't live a very long life, unfortunately. How old did uh, Father Theo live? Um, he lived to 73. He died in 1941. Okay. I know we talked about Theo, but the Earling exorcism case is one of the most monumental. It was a lot of the inspiration for, obviously, the exorcist. But just inside the Calvary Cemetery here in Milwaukee, there's a grave that you can visit. Interred there are the remains of clergyman Walter Halloran. Now, Halloran, he attended a Jesuit boarding school in Prairie du Chien before joining the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits. As Halloran worked towards his ordination, he participated in one of the most bizarre and notable events in American paranormal history. He assisted Father Raymond Bishop in the exorcism of Roland Doe. So that was 1949, the notes of which inspired the exorcist novel as well as the monumental film adaptation. Halloran was the last living witness of the possession, and it said uh, that he later expressed skepticism of the supernatural claims of Blatty's novel and also the directorial work. But Halloran, he'd go on to teach at Marquette. He served as a chaplain in Vietnam, and he directed campus ministry at uh, St. Louis before retiring at uh, St. Camillus here. He died in Wauwatosa, and he's buried here at the uh, Calvary Cemetery. Yes, actually, two witnesses to the Roland Doe exorcism died here in Milwaukee at St. Camillus, which is a retirement home for uh, priests. So they ended their life here in Milwaukee. And you, you can go and see um, Halloran's gravestone um, on Calvary, at, at Calvary Cemetery on um, Jesuit Hill. And if you need exorcism yourself, you might want to check out this seminary which is really beautiful. It's called uh, the University of St. Mary of the Lake, the Mundelein Seminary. It's one hour from Milwaukee, and I thought you had to go to Rome to get exorcism training, but they have a yearly cohort there where they train exorcists uh, from all over the world, and they also have an annual conference for exorcists. They actually come to Mundelein, Illinois, and uh, talk shop, but you can't get in because you have to be a clergyman or you have to be okayed by the bishop. So if you want to go, get that bishop for your letter going, and then you'll be able to go to the uh, conference next summer. All right. So that's right. Milwaukee, home of beer, brats, the violent femmes, and exorcism, and of course, the devil. So we'll see you next time on Wisconsin Legends Podcast. 